Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. And uh, if we've not met, if I've not met you, my name is Brian, and I'm one of the pastors here. My role is the lead pastor, and so typically week after week, I'm the one who's teaching on Sunday mornings, but we have a rotation of guys, and you'll see different pastors up here teaching God's Word. If you're new with us this morning, thank you so much for being with us, and if you're here today for the second time in 2019, I'm really excited that you came back from last week, so we hope that you'll keep doing that. Huh? 2020? What did I? Whatever year it is, who cares? Does anybody write checks? Are you still writing 2019? Thank you. Hey, if you are new, we would love for you to come to the Newcomer's Dessert. It's next week. My wife and I, this is to show you that I continue to flub things up. We, my wife and I, we were, we were all ready for the Newcomer's Dessert tonight. The island in the house is all got this, we got all this stuff laid out. Somebody making cookies, a whole deal. And it's like, oh, it's next week. You can come over tonight if you want to, but it's next week at 6 o'clock, so thank you for doing that. Let's open the Bible together to Acts 13. It's on page 921 if you're using the Bible in the pew rack, and, uh, or if you've got your device, you can open it up and, and join us there. Acts chapter 13. Once I was preparing a, a team for a short-term missions project to Southeast Asia, and in the midst of preparing that team on one night, one of the team members asked a question that they had been asked by a coworker. And the, and the question was this, hey, why don't you just distribute water filters? If these people already have a set of religious beliefs, why would you interfere with what they believe? Why would you potentially create problems for them or for their families or even in their community by going there and talking about Jesus, by explaining Christianity? Now, the truth of the matter is, and I think you, you'll see it as we walk through these two chapters, that's, that's actually a thoughtful question. It's a pretty common question these days. It might have been provocative. I, I don't know, it wasn't there. But it's a question that I hope that we'll answer together as we look at these two chapters. But let's get some context, right? Because not everybody has been with us through the study of Acts. Acts is divided into six big sections. And at the end of each of those sections, there's a summary statement that gives you the plot line of the entire book. And so at the end of chapter 6, in verse, or not at the end of chapter 6, but in chapter 6, verse 7, you find one. You find another one in chapter 9, verse 31. We saw one last week in chapter 12, verse 24. And here's the plot line. The plot line is this, that the gospel has been unleashed into the world, the word of God unleashed into the world, and despite many obstacles, it's growing and it is unstoppable. That's the plot line for the book of Acts in a broad sense. And that plot line continues today through Acts chapters 13 and 14 because we get to go on a trip. You got your passport? We're traveling today with Paul and Barnabas. We're going to go on what's called the first missionary journey. And it probably says that in your Bible. If you've got a study Bible, it for sure talks about that. And we're going to begin reading here in chapter 12, verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name is Mark. So let's pause for just a moment, because remember, this is a difficult connection. This narrative that we're starting actually ends in chapter 11 in verses 29 and 30. Where are Paul and Barnabas going back to? Antioch. They came from Antioch 
over to Jerusalem, about 300 miles, to deliver an offering from one church in Antioch to the church in Jerusalem because the church in Jerusalem was suffering. And so the people in Antioch took up an offering, like a benevolence offering, to help their brothers and sisters whom they'd never met. So they took this offering to them, and now they're going back to Antioch, and they've picked this guy up, John Mark, there in Jerusalem, and we met him in chapter 12, verse 12. So chapter 13, verse 1, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manon, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, and you could circle this little sentence here, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And so this church in Antioch is a culturally and ethnically diverse congregation because that's a reflection of the city, and their leadership certainly is represented that way. You've got Barnabas, who was a Levite. He was a Jewish man. We learned that in Acts 4. And then you have this man, Simeon, who's a Gentile man. He's likely from Africa. Lucius of Cyrene, that was a province in Africa, North Africa. He was a Gentile. And then you have Manan, who was part of the royal household of Herod the Tetrarch. He's got an interesting upbringing, a different kind of background. And then there's Saul, who was a zealous persecutor of Christians, a, a Jewish Pharisee. That's the leadership team of this new church in Antioch. I mean, that's a diverse group. And God had done something great in their hearts. He'd made them very generous. But now he's getting ready to do something completely new in this church. It's the first intentional, as it were, mission trip, mission project, that they're really going to take the gospel into places where it hasn't been before. And God does that by the Spirit. Look at chapter 13, verse 2. It says, the Holy Spirit said, set apart Barnabas and Saul to the work to which I have called them. Would you just turn the page with me to chapter 14, verse 26? I want you to just look at that for a moment because it's like bookends. This is really the end of the story that begins here in chapter 13. Look at what happens. They're coming back from this mission project. So they've left Antioch. They've gone on a big circuit. Now they're coming back to Antioch. And look at what it says in verse 26. Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God, for the work that they had fulfilled. Like parentheses, it just sets it apart. Everything in chapters 13 and 14 is about one idea. And that is that missions is the work of the Spirit. That's what these two chapters are really driving at. That's what they're getting to. Missions is the work of the Spirit. And so as we look through these two chapters, I'm going to ask three questions. Okay, particularly what is that work? How did they do it? And why was it necessary? What is that work particularly? Why did they do it? And how did they do it? And why is it necessary? So let's keep reading in chapter 13. Back a page, all right? In verse 5, we'll pick it up there. And we're going to see something here, right? When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed, when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. And so is the map there? Where's the map, fellas? Let's show them the map. Man, Okay, maybe let's go back a slide and show them the map again because I was kind of looking for an ooh or an ah or something. Anyway, uh, so there's Antioch. They go from Antioch to Seleucia. They go down to the coast. They catch a ship, and they sail that 
oh, maybe 60 miles or so out to Cyprus. And they land there in Salmas, right? And they begin to proclaim the word of God. And you could circle that little phrase, they proclaim the word of God. That's the work. That's the work. But I want to read through the rest of what happens here in Cyprus. All right, so they have John to assist them. They're doing this. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, so they've transited the island about 90 miles across, they come upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Now, there are so many contradictions in the layout of who this guy is. He's a Jewish guy, but he's a magician. And, oh, yeah, he's a false prophet. None of that belongs together. But there it is, all wrapped up in this fellow Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So he's obviously caught wind that they're there and that they're sharing the word of God, and he wants to hear it. His right-hand man is not happy with that decision. But Elamus, another name for this magician, the magician, that's the meaning of his name, opposed them. He sought to turn the proconsul away from the faith, but, but Saul, who was called Paul, and he'll be called Paul the rest of the way through the book of Acts, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He looks intently at him and he says, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. And you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So what is the work? The work is not that proconsuls and other people would necessarily be converted and believe. That's not the work the work isn't that you would stand in opposition to those who would oppose the gospel getting to other people. Call them terrible names, even when you're filled with the Spirit, and really be bold as you speak about that. That's not it. It's not even calling down a curse on those people that oppose. That's not the work. The work is to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the God. That's the work. And you see the Spirit calling Barnabas and Saul out of this church where they're worshiping, they're fasting. So they're very serious before the Lord. They're giving up meals, and they're dedicated to knowing God, to knowing his will, to knowing the direction for their life as a church family. And that's what's happening. There is nothing here in the text that tells us they were praying for missions. There's nothing here in this text that tells us they were fasting in order to send more missionaries. And yet, the Spirit moves and speaks to them. I don't know if it was an audible voice or there's this intuitive sense of leadership among the group that the Spirit is saying, I want you to set these two men apart to do this work. In other words, this wasn't a decision like putting a phone number on a program. This wasn't a decision made in a staff meeting. This was a decision made on high. This is a spirit decision. This is a God's decision. Missions is the work of the Spirit. That's where it initiated, and that's how it began. Now, why is that? I want to give you three reasons why that's true. First of all, the Spirit publicly calling Paul out in this church is just an affirmation of what Jesus had already commissioned him to do in chapter 9. Remember that? Jesus confronted Saul on the road to Damascus, and he called him out, and he said, Saul, you're going to be my chosen instrument to carry my name to proclaim the gospel, to carry my name to the Gentiles, to kings and to the children of Israel. And then secondly, Jesus in his ministry repeatedly talked about the fact that the role of the Spirit was to magnify him, 
to make him known. In fact, in John chapter 15, Jesus said that the Spirit is going to testify of me. That's the role of the Spirit. Jesus, in Luke's gospel, told his disciples, when you guys get in trouble for proclaiming the gospel, the Spirit is going to be with you. And when it's very difficult and you're not sure what to say, in that hour, the Spirit will teach you how you ought to answer. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. You see it time and time again. And right here in the beginning of this very book, in Acts 1.8, Jesus says, you're going to be filled with power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Why? So that you will be my witnesses to people near and far. The work of proclaiming the gospel is the work of the Spirit. And it is an essential marker for everyone who names the name of Christ, for every disciple of Jesus, for every church of Jesus. And if that's not happening, if you and I as believers in Christ, if we're not connected to that work, if we're not engaged in that work, then something's wrong. There is a disconnect. And something needs to change radically in our lives because the work of the Spirit is the proclamation of the gospel to the world, to making Jesus known in the world. Now, what is the gospel? When you read uh, through this passage, these two chapters, there are two sermons from Paul to two different groups of people, really different groups of people. His first sermon is here in chapter 13. It begins in verse 16 and goes nearly to the end of the chapter. But I want you to get this. We'll look at the map again, all right? So they've gone across Cyprus, 90 miles, and now they've sailed to southern. That's going to be southern Turkey. And they land in this area called Pamphylia, and they go to this city called Perga. And at that point, John Mark, remember him, he taps out. Enough is enough for whatever reason, and there's commentaries are filled with speculation about why this guy went home. But he went home back to, in, back to Jerusalem, all the way to Jerusalem. And so, we don't know why. We know this, that in Acts 15, Paul says, he deserted us, he bailed, he quit. And Barnabas, who happens to be John Mark's cousin, doesn't quite see it the same way. And those two guys have a conflict and they form two separate missionary teams, and Barnabas, no surprise, takes John Mark to be part of his team. He chooses him, and they go off their separate ways. But what we've got here now is from the coast going north to that new city, Antioch, in this area called Pisidia. So Pisidian Antioch, Paul and Barnabas are trekking about 100 miles. And if you get out your maps today and look at it, they have to cross mountains to get there. This is not an easy 100-mile journey. It's not downhill for 100 miles. It's not even flat. They're crossing mountains to get to this place. All of that to proclaim the gospel. So look at chapter 13, verse 14, right? Because when they get there, what do they do? It says, on the Sabbath day, about halfway through the verse, on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. So there's a Jewish community there, and they go to the synagogue, they're in it. And after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them. I don't know if they passed a note, I don't know. It said, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Paul stood up, motioning with his hand. There's biblical permission for preachers to wave their hands in the air. He stood up, he motioned with his hand to get their attention. Men of Israel, men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. So here's Paul, Barnabas, in this Jewish synagogue. Men of Israel, makes perfect sense. The synagogue is full of Jewish people. But there are also people there who fear God. They're God-fearers, they're Gentiles, they're Greeks. And they have bought in, at least, to the story of the Old Testament. 
The Jews there have been talking to them and they've been listening. And now they come to the synagogue. They're very much like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. You ought to go back there and refresh and find out this is what these people were like. And so in the midst of all this, Paul preaches the gospel to them. And I would summarize it under three points, what he says to them. He says that the gospel is God keeping his promises in Jesus, that the gospel is the offer of new life in Jesus, and that the gospel ends with an invitation. Will you believe in Jesus? Will you trust in Jesus? In verses 16 to 37, Paul says, I'm proclaiming the message of salvation. And that message is as old as God doing a work to raise up a people for himself. And through that people, he would bring a true king into the world. And that true king would be the Messiah. He would be the deliverer. He would be the savior of the world. Not just a deliverer and a savior out from under human Uh, opposition and human oppression but he would be the one who would save his people from their sins and Jesus is that true king and when Jesus came on the scene the Israel uh, Israel's leaders the Jewish leaders rejected him and they condemned him to death to die on a cross on the tree Paul says and when they buried him in the tomb they thought that they had washed their hands of him but Paul says this but God raised him from the dead. What a great line. That's actually the title of Easter Sunday sermon because we're gonna come right back here and we're gonna really work this over. But that's the gospel. Paul is saying God fulfilled the promises that he'd made through history in the coming of Jesus. And through Jesus, he offers us new life. Look at verses 38 and 39 of chapter 13. He's drawing it to a close, and he says this, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed, or your Bible may say justified, from everything from which you could not be freed or justified. It's the same word. Freed by the law of Moses. And so this this is an offer of new life in Jesus. That's the gospel, that God kept his promises in Jesus and that through Jesus we can have a new life. We can have our sins forgiven and wiped away. We can come out from under, be set free from the condemnation that's on every human being because of our sins, because we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of God's glory. We're all guilty. We're all under that condemnation and yet we can be set free from that and we can be given the righteousness of Christ as a gift. That's what it means to be justified, that God takes our sins from us, he places them on Jesus, who's innocent, and he gives to us the righteousness of Christ. God saves us because we cannot save ourselves. The law only tells us that we're incapable of pleasing God. It only tells us that we're guilty. It can never tell us that we're all right, that we're good, that we've done well. It only condemns us. But God, through Christ, longs to save us, to give us this new life, to set us free, to give us forgiveness, to give us righteousness. And he does it all through Jesus, who died in our place for our sins, taking the penalty for those sins. He was buried and then he rose from the dead. And because of Jesus being raised to life, we can have that resurrection life in us. We can be raised from the dead, as it were, right now and live forever with God. That's the good news. And so the gospel says, Will you respond to Jesus? Will you believe 
this good news. In fact, it ties the fact that this freedom and this forgiveness and eternal life are all connected to an act of faith, to trusting in, in Jesus, to believing in him. Now, there are different responses to the gospel, and we've all seen them, right? We had them ourselves. Maybe someone shared the gospel with you early on in your life, and at first you were maybe just antagonistic and didn't want to hear it. But somewhere along the way, perhaps you became more open to it for one reason or another. Only God knows what that is. And you started listening, and somewhere along the line, you embraced Christ. You trusted him. And when we try to share the gospel, we run into people all the time that have these different kinds of responses. Some people are open to hearing more. That's true in this passage in verse 42. When this message is over, Paul, it says, it says they went out and the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Man, that's great. I mean, Elvis used to have this little, this little saying at the end of his concert, was always leave them wanting more. And that's, I guess, what Paul did that day. He, they wanted more. They wanted to hear some more of this. Would you come back next week and tell us that story again? And they wanted to hear it. They were open to it. But some people oppose it. We saw that early in chapter 13 where that magician, that false Jewish prophet was trying to oppose and interfere with the gospel. We see it in this chapter in verses 44 all the way down through 52, people opposing the gospel. But then we also see people embrace it. We see Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man, a smart guy, high up in Roman government, embrace Christ. And we see it here in this text in verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this good news, they started to rejoice and glorify God for his word. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That all belongs together. They were appointed to eternal life, therefore they, they believed. It's really a, a massive kind of thing. Paul is preaching the gospel to these people and there are different responses to it. And we see that all the time as we share with people. Paul's second gospel sermon, though, was really different in fact, you'd have to turn to chapter 14. You may not need to turn there if you're in the same spot that I am in my Bible. In chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas are in a new place. Now, I'm skipping over a spot, all right? So on the map, they went from Antioch of Pisidia to Iconium next. And from there, they went to that town called Lystra. And that's where we're at. We're going to come back to Iconium, so don't, don't lose heart. But they're in Lystra. And Lystra is a very unique place. It's not a cosmopolitan kind of city like Iconium or like Pisidian Antioch. It's very different. It's more rural. The people there speak the Lyconian language. So they, they're not first, first language Greek speakers. In, in fact, as you read through the text, you'll discover that Paul and Barnabas, they can't really understand what these people are saying. They, they start chattering amongst themselves, and these two guys are kind of left out of the conversation. They don't get it. The point is this. These people are not Jews. They're Greeks. They worship idols. They worship the Roman gods. And so when Paul tells them the gospel, he doesn't start in the same place with them as he did with the people in Antioch of Pisidia because he was speaking with people who were familiar with the story of God in the Old Testament. He starts where they are. So look at it in verse uh, 14, verse 14 and, and following there in chapter 14. It says, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, and I'll tell you what that is, they tore their garments, they rushed into the crowd and said, men, why are you doing these things? I'll explain it in a second. We also are men of like nature with you. We bring you, you can circle this section right here, we bring you good news. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. 
That's the gospel in this place from Paul to turn from the vain things to a living God. And who is this God? He's the God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he didn't leave himself without witness. He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And then Luke breaks in and narrates it for himself. And even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to him. And that's, that fills in the blank for us. What happened earlier was this. They come to Lystra and God mercifully heals a man who's lame. He uses Paul to do that. Paul speaks to this man as he's declaring the gospel in the middle of the streets. And he sees this lame man. He tells this man to get up. He gets up, and the people think that gods have come down. They are amazed at what just took place. And they want to worship Barnabas and Saul and Paul. They, they want to they worship them. They want to deify them. They think that, that Barnabas is Zeus. They think that Paul is Hermes, his spokesman. And so they get the priest, and the priest gets some bulls, and they get garland, and they show up, and they say, we're going to make a sacrifice because you guys are worthy. And that's why Barnabas and Saul tear their clothes and say, just a minute, this can't happen. We're men like you. We're simply messengers to bring you good news. And here's the good news. Not believe, but turn. Turn, turn from worthless things, from worthless idols, and trust in the God who created everything. There is a living God. If you look around you, all these things that you enjoy in your life, all the harvests that you've been through, all the meals that you've enjoyed, all of this goodness around you is all from the hand of the living God who made the earth, who made the seas and everything in them. You should turn to him because he's real. He's the one who provides true satisfaction, real life. All of these idols that you're worshiping, all of these things that you put your hopes and trust in, they're nothing. They're worthless. You should put your hope in the God who made it all. In other words, creation screams, there is a creator. I know there's a lot of smart people in the room, much smarter than me. And I understand that at the molecular level and at the geographic level and all of these other levels, that there are lots of things that get our brains in knots about the creation. But beloved, would you, would you give me this much? The creation of the world, the universe, and all of this that we know, what if it were just the tip of the iceberg of all that's there, of all that God has done, that there is a creator God and that he made it all, and he made us, and he made us to know him. Creation is a tip-off that there is more to this life than the natural world that we see, that there is a God who can be known. He may not be known by seeing him with our eyes, hearing him with our ears, touching him with our hands, tasting of him with our mouth, but doesn't the Bible say in the Psalms, taste and see that the Lord is good? What in the world does that mean? It's a, it's a poetic statement. God is real, and Paul is leaning in to these people and saying, turn away from all of the natural things that you worship and hope in and turn to the living God, who, yes, is invisible, but he is real, and you know the reality of his presence by all of the goodness that you've received from his hand. And so he preaches the gospel to them that way, and so he says, turn, turn to this God. Paul and Barnabas are proclaiming the gospel. That is the work 
And it doesn't matter whether they're standing before a bunch of Jews in a synagogue or God fears in a synagogue or they're in the streets of a Greek city where people worship idols. They are declaring, believe on Jesus for salvation. Turn to the God of creation and trust in him. Turn your life and your heart over fully to him. He is the one from whom you receive life. And I'm sure that if he could have gone on in that sermon, he would have found his way to Jesus. Undoubtedly, we see a little bit more of this same kind of sermon, by the way, in Acts chapter 17. So if you want to read ahead a few weeks from now, we'll get there and we'll see a very similar kind of message there. And Paul gets a little closer to Jesus in that message as well. But that's what we, we see here. And that they did this amazing work. Now, can, can I just ask us to apply some of this this morning? Because I don't want to assume that everybody that gathers at 9 o'clock on a Sunday morning at a church is necessarily a Christian or that you're a believer. You may be here because you're open and you want to hear more, and I'm grateful that you're here. I want to ask you, are you today willing to believe? Are you today willing to turn to trust in God's Savior, the true King, Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one who can save us from our sins? Are you willing to say that God is holy and that you're guilty of sin? Are you willing to say to him, God, I know that you're holy. I know that I'm guilty of sin. I know my sins condemn me. They've separated me from you and from life. And I believe that Jesus is the way. I believe Jesus is the Savior. I believe he's your son. I believe he lived the life I couldn't live, that he was condemned to die unjustly, but that he rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead and he lives, I can have life, resurrection life, and how I want that. I want to be forgiven, I want to be set free, I want to be made right with you, God. I can't get you ready for that. I can't bring you to that decision, but I believe that God's Spirit can, and perhaps he's bringing you to that right now, even this morning. We teach the gospel, we preach the gospel from God's word because we believe that there are people all the time looking to hear it and wanting to know it. And so this morning, perhaps would be the day that you say, I'm believing, I'm turning away from all of my self-effort, away from my sin, and I'm trusting in God, I'm trusting in Christ and what he's done for me. Perhaps, though, some of you, many of you, are probably genuine Christians, believers. And my question to you is this, can you explain the gospel to someone? Not in the way that a pastor or a preacher might on a Sunday morning from a pulpit like this, but can you explain the gospel to someone? Can you walk through it? Could you open your Bible and explain it to them? One of the things that we learn, I think, as we look through chapters 13 and 14 is that, is that the only way that we'll ever know who's actually open to hearing the gospel or who's actually willing to embrace the gospel is if we actually proclaim the gospel. We have to share the gospel. I've had lots of great conversations with people over the years. It usually starts out with, hi, my name is, and we do that. They say, hey, where do you live? Oh, for how long? Uh, what do you do? And we talk about work, and how did you get into that? And, you know, how were you trained? And you go through all of that. Do you have a family? Tell me about your kids and all of that. Those are great conversations, you know. Who are you rooting for in the playoffs? You want the Niners? Ooh, right, yeah, yeah. Who, who do you, you know, what? We talk about all those things, and that's a great way to get to know people. Say, hey, what do you enjoy doing with your life? Those are good conversations. How do we get to that? How do we get to the next level? Can I just encourage you to do something that would really require faith and some boldness, but it's not really that difficult? Why don't you say, hey, can I ask you a question? Are you a Christian? 
And you're like, wow, man, you just, it's like you just launched a, a weight out of a balloon and it's going to land on somebody's head. But just ask them, hey, I'm just curious, are you a Christian? I'm a Christian. I'm wondering if you're a Christian. See what they say? A whole other conversation is going to be born right there. And go with it. You're making a friend and you're having a conversation with someone. And then ask this Have you ever heard the gospel? Have you ever heard the gospel? And if they say no, you just ask permission. Can I, can I tell you the gospel? Can I share the gospel? It's a message that's changed my life, and I would love to share it with you. They may say no. They may put you off. They may be antagonistic. Who knows? But you're not going to know whether they're open to the gospel or they're willing to embrace the gospel until you cross that threshold and share the gospel. Can I tell you a story that I heard this morning? First thing, uh, one, one of our brothers here in the church said, hey, we, we were out and we were signing some papers at this legal meeting. And in the midst of that, I asked this person who was doing this work, hey, I'm just curious, do you have any faith? What do you believe? And you think, well, they're signing legal documents. Why would you ask that? Because you're doing the work and the work of the Spirit is to proclaim the gospel and you're signed up for that, right? So they ask that question and, and this person starts to, starts to answer and starts to give their answer. And, and there are a couple other folks and they all get into that conversation as well. And then our, my friend, he, he comes back in, he says, hey, we should go to lunch and talk about this some more. And the person says, yeah, I'd love to talk about that some more. And so they had started into the gospel. The person said, yeah, I want to talk about this some more. Let's have lunch. And after one and two opportunities, tries to make an appointment happen, an appointment finally gets made, and our brother actually gets to share the gospel with this person from start to finish. And it ends up being a really great conversation. And there's another appointment set for a future date. Nobody embraced the gospel. Nobody rejected it. But there's an openness. And the only way we ever get to that is if we actually share the gospel, proclaim it. And so I'm encouraging you to, to do that, to learn to explain the gospel and then to just, just step into it and trust God to use it because that's the role of the Spirit in the world, to make Jesus known, to proclaim the gospel and to use us to do it. So you can explain the gospel just that way. You can be equipped to do that. Next week, we're going to have a video about this and talk about it later, but I want to put the oomph behind it a little bit if I can. Next week, we're going to have an equip event. And on Saturday, we're going to be talking about how to, how to preach the gospel to ourselves. Because we all need the gospel. We need the good news of Jesus every single day of our lives. It shapes what we think, how we feel, the words that we say, the actions that we take. And it shapes us as a church together. But then we also need the gospel because we need to explain it to people who've not believed it yet, just as someone explained it to us. And so that will happen on Sunday. I would love for you to come to both, but if you can only come to one, I'm going to encourage you to come on Sunday afternoon. But we need to know that you're coming, so we want you to sign up. But it's a, a great opportunity for you to do just that. Now, this is the work, the proclamation of the gospel. That's what they got into. But I want you to see this, this second question here. How did they do this work? And I want to give you a word. They persevered. That's how they did this proclamation. They persevered. And you see that throughout these two chapters, even though that word isn't in those two chapters. And I want to tell you that they persevered by the Spirit, in trouble, and for the church. They persevered by the Spirit, in trouble, and, and for the church. Now, we should know this, that uh, doing this work, engaging in missions, this work of the Spirit, it is a spiritual work. 
And it's not something that you and I would persevere in on our own. Imagine how difficult it would have been for Paul and Barnabas to have a good reception in Salmas on the east side of Cyprus, to cross the island 90 miles, to have a guy of stature uh, and, and weight ask to hear from you about the gospel, and you go there and there's some cat interfering with that process. That, that can be very discouraging. And we've all been discouraged in our efforts to share the gospel as we've done that. We've, we've had those moments. So we won't stay at it. We won't keep going unless the Spirit has filled us, unless we're really motivated by a love for Christ, a love for the good news, and the filling of the Spirit. You see it in chapter 13, verse 2. It's the Spirit that initiates this work and says, set apart Barnabas and Saul for this work that I've called them to. In verse 4, it's the Spirit that sends them out of that church to the missions field. And in chapter 13, verse 9, it's Paul who's filled with the Spirit who boldly proclaims the gospel and faces opposition all at the same time. It's a spiritual work. Perseverance is something that might be kind of in your nature. You might be a stick-to-it kind of person. You commit, you dedicate, and you say, yes, I'm going to show up and I'll be there at a certain time and place. And people can count on you the way they count on their watch. They can just set it by you. You're, you're, you're just that kind of steady person. And you stick it out no matter what. But that's not the kind of perseverance I'm talking about. This goes beyond that. Because this is spiritual work when we share the gospel with people. It goes beyond anything that we can do in our own skills, and our own ability, and our own talents. It's a spiritual work. It's the very work of God in the world by his spirit through his people. And when we face trouble and difficulty and all that, we'll never stay at it unless we're consciously, intentionally dependent on the spirit in the midst of it. Now that all seems kind of difficult to really grasp because it's like, well, how do I depend on the spirit? Well, you need to be in God's word because the spirit intends to use the word in our hearts and lives to empower us and to enable us to share the gospel with people. You can also just simply pray consciously, dependently, say, Father, fill me with the spirit. Spirit of God, come and fill me today. May my life and my heart exhibit your fruit today of love and joy and peace. Do the people around you, would they say that you exhibit the fruit of the spirit in your character? That's how you know if you're filled with the Spirit, if you're acting according to the Spirit. We need the Spirit's filling and empowering to do this work that we've been called to do and to persevere in it because there'll be discouraging times. Not every conversation is going to go the way I just described that one. And so we need the Spirit to show up and live in us. And so if I could encourage you to, to do anything and to apply that in any way, it would be this to be willing to stay at it, to be willing to say, God, I'm, I want to be filled with your spirit and I long to be controlled, to be dependent on your spirit so that what happens in my life and what shows up in my life is of eternal value. Not just temporal value, but of eternal value. If you go back to John 15, Jesus talks about the fact that if we abide in him and he abides in us, that our lives are gonna bear fruit and that fruit will remain. I think it's a wonderful picture of the spirit-filled life, honestly. And that's the kind of fruitful lives we want to have as a church family. What is the work? The work is the proclamation of the gospel. How did they do it? Well, they persevered by the Spirit. Then they persevered in trouble and for the church. 
And then we understand why all of that was necessary. But we're going to do all of that on another day. And everybody said, amen. amen. <laughs> Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. And uh, Lord, I confess that I am not able always to um, ring out this word and to understand it best and to get it in a way that your people can understand it. So I am glad this morning that you are the one who communicates through every human instrument that stands on this stage, whether they're leading worship or preaching the truth and preaching your word. We thank you for the filling of your spirit and for your help in these things. God, I thank you for the promise that when your word goes out, it won't return void, but it will, it will bear fruit in the lives of people. I pray that your word today would bear fruit in my life, that I would walk through this day and this week as a man who's filled with the spirit, that my dear wife would know that, my kids would know that, uh, my coworkers, my pastors, and, and, and Gene, that we would know it together. Father, we pray for that. I pray for that today for your people, that we would be a spirit-filled church, that the mark of the spirit, the proclamation of the gospel would be true, not just in this room on Sunday mornings, but in all of our lives across this community and across this city and even to the nations. When some of us get on planes and we go half a world away for our jobs, for our work, wherever we find ourselves, or perhaps on a mission project, that the work of your spirit, that is the proclamation of the gospel to the world, it would be active and living part of our lives and that we would persevere in it no matter what by the strength and power of your enabling spirit. God, thank you for all of that. And Father, I pray for any heart in the room today that needs Jesus, that would believe and turn to him. I pray they wouldn't leave here without grabbing somebody and saying, tell me the gospel one more time. I want to hear it again. I want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, to believe and to turn. Father, we pray that that would happen today. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.